Hello and welcome back to season three. No, welcome to season three, uh, episode two of the Strings of Pearl Fire. I know that last episode I like mixed it up. I said like, oh, it's episode blah blah blah. I don't really remember. Probably episode seven. And then I realized that based on the story types, because it was out of spiral notebooks instead of a computer in a drive, I realized I'm probably gonna make this another season because like season three. Because it wouldn't really match kind of with the same storytelling as I did with the first two seasons. So I just decided to make it a new season. So last episode was our episode one of season three. So Spiral Notebooks part two is today. Because I have many. And I decided that I'm going to read a lot of them. So today we're going to read a couple stories as usual. Um, the first one I'm going to read is... It doesn't have a title... But I wrote it in 2018, um, January. Um, I did, I was on a way to New York City on a train. It was like my birthday trip. And I just started writing and that's, it's only a couple pages. Um, so it, it kind of like ends on like a meh note. Cause I like, I never start, I never, I start all my stories, but I almost never end them. Unless it's like a short story for like a class or something. So here is... The first, the second episode of Spiral Notebooks Part 2. The sun rose high above the jungle, east of the Cory Mountains. Birds and colorful macaws chirped brightly in the light purple air. But beyond this cheerful wood lay a burning village. Smoke rose over under the sun, the black turning red by its powerful rays. Flames devoured the wooden and brick buildings. The heat sent birds and rats caw- cawing and shrieking away. By mid-afternoon, the flares had diminished into ash, and all that was left of the wa- was the warm spring breeze and the remains of a crippled town. The jungle suddenly released a flock of scattered birds. Scattering birds, for down deep on the fourth floor, moved a pair of humans, a boy and a girl. Elm, come on, how long are you going to be? Groaned Ursa, adjusting her pack and leaning on her walking stick. A muffled sound came from up in the nearby tree. I'm... Ugh. Almost close. <sighs> Enough to grab them. Oh, there we go. Elm popped his head out of the leaves and grinned. Got them all, he said breathlessly. He shimmied down the trunk and erupted out of it, and then erupting out of his sleeves and pockets were mangoes of various, or emptied out his sleeves and pockets. Mangoes and various roots tumbled out, and her stomach growled. She slit out her knife and started to carve each pit out of the juicy flesh. She handed one half to Elm, whom in which moans as the mango juice flooded his mouth. The other she cut into itty-bitty pieces and speckled each one before slowly chewing the juicy mango. This next part I borrow uh, a month later. You know, began Elm, those aren't poisonous. You wouldn't, you don't have to inspect every single piece. Well, you do remember what happened to Grandpa Lewis when he ate a green fuzzy mango and that he thought was ripe. Elm shrugged. Yeah, well, I wouldn't have given it to you even if it felt or looked or smelled strange. Ursa laid a hand on Elm's shoulder. I know, I trust you, but it's just me being extra cautious as we're in the jungle. Elm patted her hand. In that case, he stood up and offered her a hand. Let's keep walking. Ursa smiled and let Elm pull her up. She grabbed her pack and stick and followed Elm to the way they knew their favorite old village. 
Elma and Ursa approached the clearing that looked into the town. They were laughing and shoving each other's shoulders when they noticed the smoke and rubble. What happened here? whispered Elm. He turned to Ursa, but she was gone. Her pack was discarded, and he found her racing down the hill towards the village. Hey, Ursa, wait! he shouted, scrambling to grab her pack and racing after her. Elm entered the village and slowed to a stop when he found Ursa kneeling over the remains of a house and crying. He walked up to her and set down the packs. Ursa raised her head at him and then buried herself in his strong embrace. Elm just quietly rubbed her back. He'd never seen her break down and cry before. The times she did get emotional were very rare. When she did, though, she would run off and let him not let him follow. And then she would come back after a while and be quiet and irresponsible that day. But the next morning, she'd return to normal. When Ursa's tears and quiet sobs ended, she looked at him and said, Grandpa Louis and Grandma Marie lived here. They're just gone now. I know, answered Elm, taking her hand. Let's take a look, though, to see what survived. Ursa let him pull her up to the destroyed stairs and into the destroyed house. Inside, there was a lot of wall and floor damage. Many of the windows were missing, but the main inferior interior of the three-story building was still intact. It looked as if the fire had only burned parts of the house. Some of the rooms were completely burnt away, but surprisingly, the bedrooms on the top two floors were still standing. Some of the stairs, though, were damaged, so Ursa was more cautious when she ascended up the flights to her guest bedroom and Louise and Marie's room. In her room, she found that the bed was stripped bare, and the room was vacant of anything except a mirror, a dresser, and a separate bathroom. In her closet, though, strangely, were woolen blankets, first aid packs, knives, bows and arrows, and packs, and bundles of water. Ursa closed the curtain and stepped into the bathroom. That's all I have for that story. I was trying to go with... She found, like, a survival kit in her closet, and she was really wondering about it. And then she would find in the bathroom, like, more survival items and, like, a note that said, meet us somewhere. Which would have been hinting that either her grandparents survived or there was somebody else that had been living in um, Ursa's bedroom that she had not known about. And maybe the grandparents were hiding somebody that was surviving who was like a mis- like a fugitive or something. Or could have been just like a random kid that they picked up the street. But I didn't have an actual plot for this. It just happened to be this. I just it, I get kind of carsick on like trains. So I had to sit forward a lot of the time and looking down, looking at this. It's all weird. But um yeah, this is, that was it. Ursa and Elm, two skinny teenagers, good friends. So, yeah. And the next one we're going to read is um, a story that I wrote. For some reason, I was in a furniture store with my parents. I, um, it was a really long time ago, but we were looking at either bed frames or chairs in like an Amish store. And, um, we were just visiting at that moment, but we were looking for, like, old chairs and stuff, and uh, there was this bathroom, I don't know why, it was just a bathroom, but it had, like, concrete floor, like, concrete walls of, like, brick stone or whatever. There was a boiler in the corner and just a random toilet sink and mirror, but for some reason I was really inspired by that and decided to write a story about it. So this one is called Mirror, Mirror on the Wall. It's different than what you would actually think it would be, but this one I do like because I actually did end this 
for, um, I did end this at a point, so it's, it's not like a cliffhanger, but it's an ending at a point where you kind of wonder what happens next, but I didn't, I like to end on cliffhangers, because that basically tells people that I don't know what else to write, so, onto the story, this one will be a bit longer. The bathroom was bare, except for a boiler, mirror, sink, and bowl. The walls dripped, the air stank of mold, and the floorboards creaked of rot. I'd been in here for who knows how long. The gnashes that I'd made with a broken piece of plumbing were uncountable. It took up one wall and counting, floor to ceiling. There was an occasional flicker of the light bulb. The door was always bolted shut. My meals came from a slit in the wall. I once tried to see in the slit, but all there was was darkness. There was no way out. No trap door, no window to climb out of, not even a vent. It was either blistering hot or piercingly cold. My head would sweat so much that I'd have to rip up my shirt to keep my hair and sweat out of my eyes. I haven't washed in months. I've gotten rashes down my neck and back, dirt crusting under my fingernails, dirt and dried sweat clinging to the remains of my clothes. My hair was a rat's nest. It's always in the way, so greasy, and I'm pretty sure I have lice. My shoes, well, I wouldn't say that they're that. They're more like long pieces of cloth, protecting them very slightly from getting splinters in my feet, and from the blisters and frostbite that ink in the constantly changing atmosphere temperatures. A tray appeared out of the wall, and I caught it before the contents went everywhere. The slit then snapped shut, and I turned my attention to my meal. It was a small roll and two slices of meat. I balanced the tray on the sink after I gulped down some water. Then I began my exercises that I've been doing ever since I realized that I needed to be ready once I was let out of here. That is, if I ever got out. My muscles shook as I cranked out 250 push-ups. My core was built up since, but I still am quite worn out by the workout. Well, when I'm done doing chin-ups on the pipes stretching out of the ceiling, I drip... I drink a bit of water and wait a bit before I eat so it doesn't come back up. Time slipped by and my stomach finally started to growl. I began to on the meal really slowly. It was slightly seasoned but still tasted bland. When I was done nibbling away the remains, I break the roll into quarters and then put three on the sink on top of strips of cloth along with other quarters of bread. I had begun saving the bread, only eating one quarter each time when I wake up from sleeping. The ones that started to mold I flushed down the bowl. I tasted the bread I tasted the bread that nibbled away at the crust. It tasted familiar, but I couldn't quite grab at the memory the last time of me eating it. My stomach still growled, but I restrained myself from eating the other three quarters. I walked over to the sink and picked up the metal tray, and then slipped it back into the slot in the wall. The slit closed with a loud snap. I picked up the piece of plumbing and scratched a hash into the wall and curled up into my sleeping corner. It was the only corner I had found warmer than the rest. I tied my hair back with two long strips from my pants and then shut my eyes as sleep found me. In my head, there was just darkness for a long time. But then suddenly, an old rhyme appeared. Mirror, mirror on the wall, Cinderella fled the ball. Rapunzel's prince had a great fall. Bella's, Bella's horse ran quick to its stall who was the fairest of them all it made no sense but as soon as it appeared it vanished leaving me in complete darkness when i woke up the next time i did i found my eyes gazing towards the mirror 
I got to my feet and then cringed at my reflection as I neared the sink. Then I pressed my hand against the surface. This, the strange tune in my head. My hands felt cold, but as I focused my attention fully on the mirror, it rippled. I pressed my finger onto it, and I disappeared into the mirror. I pushed my whole hand in, and I felt nothing. Just cold air. But then suddenly a jolting alarm shrieked. I stumbled away. I scrambled away from the mirror and ran to my things of bread and tied them up, bun bundling them up and tying them to my waist. Then I yanked this bowl seat until it came off. Then I broke it against the wall until I had a jagged piece. I tied that then to my back as well and yanked the mirror off the wall. The alarm was so loud I could barely hear my own thoughts racing through my head. But I became fully aware of the huge thuds that had started on the big iron bolted door. I began to panic when it started to tremble. I placed the mirror on the floor face up, for forgot all, pushed away all the silly warnings in my head and put both feet on the surface, grabbing hold of the bread and my weapon and shutting my eyes really tightly. A breeze tickled my neck and I opened my eyes to find myself in a large hall of mirrors. I stared back behind me and there's the room where I've been in for, as long, for a long time. I broke a bit of mirror off and slipped it into my pocket with the bread. In my room mirror, I could hear that the alarm had stopped. The door stopped its thudding, but then was torn off its big iron hinges. A man of six foot seven, or what it seemed, stormed in with 20 other men as tall and as bulky as he was. He picked up the mirror and stretched his hand to the surface, but his hand did not go through the mirror. He yelled a curse and then slammed the mirror against the wall. I stared at my own piece of mirror, but the picture of my room stayed the same. I watched the men storm out and then slipped the piece back into the bread pouch. I began my way down the hallway of mirrors. The most intriguing part of it was each mirror showed a different place as did mine. Each one I placed at my fingertips on the surface though. None rippled as much as mine did so I kept moving along. The hall ended and spread into a huge room, where in the middle sat a grand table with food enough to feed a country on it. There were people sitting at each of the silver chairs, but as I jogged over to the table, I hesitated before I touched any of the food. I turned to the people, but then jumped back with a yelp. They were not people. They were very, very dead skeletons, with a fork full of food in their mouth. They were so frail that when I touched a part of their clothing, it disintegrated into dust. I avoided the table then, and then discovered three doors. One red, one black, and one blue. I stepped over to each of them and placed my hand on the handle of each, but none of them rippled. So I went over to the table, picked up a gold plate, and hurled it at the red door. It slipped through, but then bounced back. I stared at it, and then and saw that it was covered based on the coppery, coppery scent blood. I recoiled at that and grabbed the fork and hurled it at the black door. It disappeared, but then flew back as well as the plate had done. I kept my distance, but the smell of rotting flesh on the fork was so bad I had to force down my nausea. I looked for the simplest goblet then, and found one that was not made of gold, but of plain glass. I gently pushed it into the door, into the glass into the door, and it slowly came back through filled with clear, clean liquid. I picked it up and felt the outer cup. It was smooth and cold from the contents inside. I sniffed the liquid and then placed my finger inside the cup. 
It felt cool and safe. My finger didn't crawl with disease. So I was still hesitant, but I leaned forward and took a sip. I tensed, but nothing happened. But when I placed my hand on the blue door, it then rippled, so I stepped through. I didn't close my eyes this time. I happened to be floating in cool air, and then the red and black doors opened. Blood and yelling, swords clashing and soldiers dying spilled into the grand room. The room was filled with war cry, and I was relieved that the plate had warned me. The black door spilled out flies, maggots, dying bodies, dying men, man-eating zombies of people, diseases, plague, and poison. The fork had warned me too, but this door, the blue door, was calm. I named the red door war, and the black is death, but this door, I named it peace. The cool, crisp air lulled me to sleep, and in my head was a lush green meadow in the middle of a spring wood. I awoke to birds chirping and the sway of the grass against the breeze. I woke up in the meadow in the middle of a spring wood, sun warming my back. Strange, I thought, same as in my dream. Then everything came crashing back. The mirror, the feast with the skeletons, the three doors, the blue door. I laid back on the grass, soaking in the sun. Soft footsteps made their way to me. So when I opened my eyes again, a male lion with a mane, the giant with a great mane, stared down at me. Ah! I yelled, scooting back. The lion just looked at me, looking slightly amused. I tried to calm my heart and say, hello. The lion came over, plopped down, put his head in my lap and started to purr. I hesitantly rubbed his mane and he curled up closer. The lion was a light orange-brown, and his mane and tail were a coppery color. Hmm, where did you come from? The lion just rumbled as I scratched under his chin. I should give you a name, I said to his dark blue eyes. How about Sapphire? He sat up and puffed out his chest. I laughed and then got up. I'm going to find water to bathe in, I told him. He got up and stretched. We then walked through a patch of daffodils into the woods. Sapphire found a mossy path, and we followed it until I saw a silver river. A little waterfall fell into a lake, the bottom of the pool, stone and smooth. Saf climbed in and sunned on a rock in the middle of the pool. I placed a jagged piece of plumbing and my bread bundle on top of a large boulder and then started to undress. I stripped off my hairbands and feet strips and dropped them onto the sto- on the stone steps into the pool. I then take off my shorts, as whatever you could call them if they were shorts, and undershorts. My shorts are basically my pants and rags. Then I removed my shirt and put them on the stairs as well. The pool is cool, but the sun keeps me from shivering. I beat out the dirt and sweat out of my clothes and then stripped this in strips on the stones and used small rocks to scrape off the extra gunk and grime. Then I climbed out of the pool and laid them out on the boulder with my pack. But I kept one strip to grab a bit of moss and descended back into the lake. I put the mo- cloth and the moss on a rock shelf under the waterfall and then stuck my head out of the falls. My head instantly cooled. I just tripped off a piece of rock and scratched the top of my head. I can feel my I could feel my head getting cleared of lice and oil and dirt and sweat. When my head feels raw, I scratch under my fingernails until they are no longer crusty and there is dirt under, and there is no dirt under them. Next I put down the slab and start to scrub out my hair started to scrub out my hair with my nails that had gotten really long. By mid-afternoon, according to the sun, I'd cleaned, scrubbed my body, hands, feet, and hair. 
I had to deal with my hair for a while. I fought and grunted, pulled and yelled, but though, but though it became clean, it still remained a tight knot. I placed the cloth and moss on the large boulder and then called Sapphire over to the side. I tried to tell him to cut my hair with his claws, but for some, some surprisingly reason, he was able to understand me. He cut my hair just below my ears like a boy's slight crew cut. The area on my shoulders felt different, but it was a relief to reach back and not feel tangled knots. I climbed up the pool and onto the mossy path. My bare skin sang with cleanliness, and I felt like I could finally breathe. I found a small pile of pine needles and bunched it up with some moss, and then I broke into, broke a curved piece of bark off a tree and started back towards the lake. I filled the bark with water and then placed the pine needles into the water. Next, I found a smooth, round piece of rock and started to crush the needles in the water until the water smelled strongly of pine. I took a strip of cloth and dipped it in, coating it until it was faintly green. I applied the pine-scented cloth to my underarms until they no longer smelled of sweat, but of pine. My clothes had finally dried out and smelled of clean, of fresh air. I put on my clothes and shorts and then wrapped my feet in strips and then wrapped wrapped my feet strips around my bread bag. I took out two quarters of bread, nibbled on one, and handed the second to Sapphire, who shook himself out and munched on it. We began down the mossy trail again after we took large gulps from the falls. I made three large strips from my rock slabs onto a tree, so when I want water, I can find my way back. The sun had begun to set when Saf and I approached the mossy path. The mossy cave. It was overgrown with vines of flowers on the outside and willow vines curtained as if to be a door. I pulled them back and inspected the mossy cave. It, it was clean and smelled fresh, and the moss was very soft and didn't crawl with bugs. The atmosphere was warm, so I didn't bother finding a blanket to sort that sort of thing. I curled up next to Sapphire, and we both fell into a deep sleep. A rustle woke me up, and I grabbed my piece of plumbing and my rock knife. Sapphire stayed asleep, so I pulled back the willow vines and stepped out into the moonlit woods. I could hear the rustle, and a, a rustle, and then a call. Approaching the sound, I found a crow stuck in a trap. I cautiously stepped over the trap and cut away the rope. Then I reached over to untangle the crow's foot. The bird started flapping and calling at me. I untangled its foot, and the bird started clawing at my ear and attacking me. I yelled, ah, in pain, and shooted away. By the time it flew away, I was left with long bloody scratch marks on my shoulder, across my collarbone, and down my cheekbone to my chin. I cut a strip I cut a strip of my shirt and tied it to, to across my face. Then I grabbed up the rest of the rope and hauled it back to our cave. Sapphire was awake when I arrived at the rope and mewed at my wounds. I let him lick away the blood and then help stop the bleeding. It's just, it was just a stupid crow, I told him, while bandaging my shoulder and face. I was trying to help him, but then when I did, he attacked me. Saf looked at me with sad eyes, but then when he pushed, but then he pushed it, pushed up my hand when I tried to, tried to put it to my scratches. What is it? He takes out a claw and pulls out a piece of metal from my cheek. He sniffed at it and then growled. Then I understood. A tracker? What the heck? Sapphire grabbed it with his teeth and sprinted out of the cave. He returned a few moments later without it. He waited until I packed up my belongings and rope, and then I said our agreement out loud. We are going to have to leave the travel at night and sleep by day. If someone's watching or following us, we should try and throw them off course.
At dawn, we trotted back to the pool, and I made a pouch out of palm leaves that I had found and some, ro- and some of the rope. I filled the flask with water and then take a large gulp from the pool. Seth did the same. Did the same. When the sun was fully up, we f- we'd found a very wide tree trunk, big enough to fit the both of us. I laid down moss and put pine branches in front of the entrance. The sun was high in the sky as afternoon settled when we fell back to sleep. It was twilight when Sapphire licked me awake. We set off deeper into the forest and then followed a river upstream. Saf found a winter found winter berries along the stream and chewed a few before he let me eat them. I pulled roots from the ground and then built a fire to boil water. I placed the roots into the water and waited until they were tender before I gave them to Saf, who found some mint and berries to go with them. The fire warmed up my bones against the chill, cool air. Suddenly a twig snapped and I reached for my jagged weapon. Sapphire growled, but a boy stepped out. His hair was sticking out in every possible way. A direct direction. It was blonde, but it was difficult to see due to the amount of mud in his head, on his head and face. But all I could see through the mud were his eyes. And that is all I have. That is all of that story. I was gonna have, I was, I was technically supposed to, like, stop it, like, then a boy stepped out, but, like, or, like, a twig snapped or something, but I didn't. I just kept writing, because, like, when you read down a page, you obviously think that, like, you have to stop at when the words end. So, um, I, yes, that, that was basically that story. The, I was probably gonna go on and say that his eyes, either they were gonna, they were supposed to be, like, originally they were as deep as chocolate, but, like, that wouldn't be as good. So then now I'm thinking, what if I, like, said that his eyes were two different colors, but they glowed, like, firefly lights or something which would be really cool but really creepy at the same time or like he was really tall and like looked old but he was like probably like 17 or something i don't know but yeah that was that story and then i'm gonna click in my phone and just to see how long this has been oh 26 minutes Okay, well, that was the end of that. Thank you for listening to episode two, part two of the Spiral Notebooks Adventures. Um, have a nice day.